Uh, we're going to look at Genesis again today, and I want you to uh, look in your bulletin. The, the text is printed in there, and, I, and I'm going to encourage you just to read it out of there. If you want to read it in your Bible, that's okay, but we're jumping through quite a bit, uh, and so it's probably going to be easier for you just to read it in the bulletin. I'm going to do that so I don't miss anything. Uh, but we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we were last week, and I'm going to connect these two things, and then next week... I will finish with uh, the covenant that God makes with Noah that solemnizes all of what has happened through the flood, which is a major event, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, today. Uh, So now, if you can, uh, hear God's word, starting in Genesis 6, uh, and I'll read 9 through 14, then 8, 1 through 3, and then 9, 1. So uh, hear God's word. These are the generations of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Then in chapter 8, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a great wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God went out in his sons and wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, flood narrative is one of the most well-known sections of Scripture. I don't have to remind you of that. I think from the time that uh, kids first start learning about the Bible... Uh, we go to stories like Noah's Ark and, and that kind of thing. Now, when I was uh, looking for a job back in uh, seminary, trying to find a church that would hire me, uh, we sent out resumes, as you can imagine, like anybody else, to hundreds of churches. Marty V and I were invited uh, to interview at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. It was a, a Presbyterian church, and it was a huge church. They had like 6,000 people, gigantic campus. And they took us into the church, and it was like unbelievable. It was like the New Jerusalem had come down from heaven, and, you know, it was here on the earth. Incredible. And uh, 
they took us, first of all, to uh, the offices, showed us the office. Then they took us into the... Uh, and I wasn't going to be hired to be their pastor. Believe me, I, was, I would be number eight of a list of... I would be the last pastor on the bottom. <laughs> so it was not a... Uh, they weren't hiring me because of my great uh, uh, skill, which they missed out on. Uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, they took us to the office. Then they took us into the children's wing. And I have to tell you, it was room after room, almost the size of our building. Huge, high ceilings. And in those rooms were complete built-out play areas of Bible themes. And one of them was Noah's Ark. And so you went in and there was a huge ark. I mean, the thing was like could hold 20, 50, 30, 40, 50 kids. I mean, it was gigantic. And the kids could go play, and there were animals, big life-size animals, and it was so cool. It was beyond belief. And I remember telling Marty V, I said, isn't that funny? That the greatest act of horrific judgment that ever came into the world, that's what we teach our children first. Death and destruction. Every human being is flooded. And so the, the story of Noah's Ark, I'm going to kind of, Go through it quickly, and I hope that it will, will help you, make sense to you, and, 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 and give you an idea of why this happened. Did it happen? Is it a myth, or did it actually happen? Genesis is a book that addresses big questions, and I've been telling you week by week, they are not scientific questions. They are not talking about how God created the world, what mechanism he used, uh, whether it was six literal days, 24-hour days, or whether it was ages, we don't know. And, and Genesis doesn't say. It's not meant for that. It's to tell us why he created, who created, why he created. The only thing we know about how is that he did it by his word and his spirit. And then last week we talked about this difficult passage in Genesis 6 where he talks about the Nephilim and the sons of God marrying the the daughters of men, and it's, you know, scholars have gone round and round. What is he talking about? Is he talking about angels, you know, having marital relations with, with women and these giants? Are they giants in the land? And the word Nephilim does not mean giants. It means it's from the word Nephal in Hebrew, and it means fallen, Nephal. They were fallen men, and we don't know exactly what was... They were men of renown, men of uh, these heroic men, but not heroes in a good way. They were bad heroes, tyrannical kings. And I told you that the best way to approach some of these, the Bible can be very bizarre. Now, I, I make a living studying the Bible. I went to graduate school. I'm the smartest person in this room. Uh, when it comes, I'm kidding. You can read your Bible, and there are a lot of strange things, a lot of bizarre things. And you kind of go, what is he talking about? And if you press too much and try to make it wooden and literal and force it into the 21st century, it's just not going to make a lot of sense. In fact, you'll start doubting if it's even real. On the other hand, if you go back and you think, how would Moses have been, what was he talking about? And I use the example that if we were to bring Moses to this world or us go back to that world and try to explain to him the internal combustion engine that's in every one of your cars, unless you drive a Tesla, but if you drive a gas-powered car, you've got an internal combustion engine. How do you, how do you make sense of that to Moses? You know, the only thing about the car that he would have gotten was the wheel. Explain the tire, explain the rubber, explain brakes. I mean, all of the engine, the parts, and the gasoline, the oil, power steering. 
automatic transmission versus standard and what kind of person drives an automatic and the better people that drive standards. You know, that, how, how would you have communicated all that to uh, Moses? Well, it's the same thing. Imagine Moses is trying to tell us something that made total sense to him. And yet we are trying to get our head around these. And is he talking scientifically? You know, was there enough water to cover the Himalaya mountains? I don't know. That isn't what he's talking about. And we don't need to get all bunched up with that stuff. However, if you just take it on its own terms and read the narrative and look at what he's saying to us, it is beautiful and amazing. We can talk about the other stuff as a secondary issue. But what is going on in the book of Genesis is God is explaining to Moses and the people of Israel. Remember, they're the original audience. Moses and the, and the, and the, the community that left Egypt. They're the ones that are, this is being written to. And Moses is telling them not historiography. He's not covering every single event. We would have had a volume, volume, volume. We would have had disks, hard disks full of information. He's picking out certain things to explain why things are the Why is there evil? Why is there this serpent that is causing trouble? Why do people follow evil? Why do you find evil people? What is, what is, what's going on with suffering? Everybody asks, what is suffering? Why did God create a world with suffering? And what I've been telling you is, he didn't create a world with suffering. He created a good world. And he created good people. And he put those people into his good world. And he told them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with goodness with the Imago Dei, with what is right and what is true. And here's the power to do it. I give you the tree of life. Now this one over here, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you don't need that tree. In fact, I don't want you to eat from that tree because I don't want you to know about evil. I want you to know about good. And I want you to go out there and I want you to do what is right. And off they go and betray God. And humanity is plunged into chaos. You have creation, remember, chaos, and recreation. That is the big picture, the big story of the Bible. All right, very quickly, the flood narrative follows this pattern. And this pattern is that God is going at every time that he interacts with people. Listen to me. Every time he interacts with human beings, he is always exercising justice and mercy. It becomes a pattern. Every interaction of God, even with bad people, even with Cain, who slew his brother Abel, he deals with him in judgment, he casts him, he sends him to the land of Nod, but he protects him with some kind of a mark, I don't know what it was, Um, maybe it was a tattoo that said mom, I, I don't know what it was, but he protected him somehow so that he could go and do his thing in the land of Nod, which was more evil stuff. But anyway, the point is that God is always dealing with us with justice and mercy. The garden, Cain, Seth, Moses, David, Abraham, every one of these characters, every story has this theme of judgment. Yes, there's wrong that's being done and God is just. But there's also redemption. And the flood narrative is no different. Now, very quickly, the flood narrative goes from 6-9, which we just read, to 9.18. And if you look at it in your English Bible, it's just in a, it's in paragraph form, it's in Western form. But if you were to unroll 
a scroll, a Hebrew scroll. This entire narrative is built in what is called, I've mentioned this before, a chiasm. In other words, the the first line, 6-9, matches the last line, 9-18, and you can see how it flows down to a central single verse. And that single verse is 8-1. That's the very center of this large flood narrative chiasm. You know, Moses was not just in a trance writing this stuff down. They were thinking, how can we communicate this to our audience so when they hear it, they hear the point of the story? How can they see it on a page where the central part, you know, how would we bold the central message of this? Well, they did it in chiasms. They did it in other methods that we can't go into. But the very center of this chiasm, the one verse that connects everything before it and everything after it is 8.1, God remembers Noah. You see, God, Noah found grace in God's eyes. We talked about that last week. And then the flood comes, and I'm not going to talk about the entire flood narrative. You can look at that on your own. But, uh, and if you have questions, come to the Q&A at 9 a.m., and we, we'll talk about that. But in the middle of the flood narrative, he says, God remembers Noah. There's redemption. Judgment, yes, flood. Redemption, right in the center, and there you have it. Noah found grace. He did not earn it. This is from last week. He found grace. How did he find it? How did he find grace? Was he out looking one day for some gopher wood and he found grace? No. The New Testament tells us, listen to this, from from Hebrews chapter 11. Beautiful. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed the ark to save his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness. Listen, listen. Righteousness that comes by faith. Doesn't that sound familiar? So we're going to look at three things. I'm going to go through them quickly and then next week we'll we'll put it all together uh, with the covenant of Noah that God makes with Noah. First of all, we're going to talk about the stroke of justice. The stroke of justice, the flood. Secondly, we'll look at God's redeeming love. You see justice and redeeming love. You see them going together and you see God saving Noah and his family. Yes, there's a flood, but it doesn't kill everybody. It preserves eight souls, eight people. And then finally, we're going to look at God's new creation, which is the the, the grand meta-narrative that you see in Scripture repeated over and over again. God creates, Adam and Eve plunge it into chaos. God comes along and recreates. With Seth, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord and they plunge it back into chaos, which is Genesis chapter 6 in those first few, first few verses. But then God Uh, Noah finds grace and God is recreating a new humanity with Noah and his family. This is a story. Noah and his family come. Then the Tower of Babel. You see now you're in the Tower of Babel. Everything goes. There's judgment again. He splits up the nations. Off they go in every language. They don't know. Can't talk to anybody, each other anymore. Even though, like us, we all speak English, but we can't talk to each other. It was that way. All right? So then... Abraham, chapter 12 of of Genesis. Abraham, new creation. 
and, and, and new humanity through Abraham, and on and on it goes. Israel, Moses, a new humanity, a new creation. Joshua in the land of promise, a new creation, a new humanity, a new start, a new garden. And Jesus, a new humanity in the wilderness, in the garden of Gethsemane, and a new humanity, people, you and me, filled with Holy Spirit, filled with the power of His Spirit, born again, born anew, to be a new humanity. The flood narrative is not a child's story. It is at the heart of Scripture. So, let's check it out. Look first at God's justice. This is 11 through 13. You can see it in your notes. The earth was corrupt, full of violence. God saw it. Behold, it was corrupt. All flesh was corrupt. It was the end of all flesh. The earth was filled with violence. Behold, I will destroy them all with the earth. Look at how Moses repeats. You remember why? In Hebrew and Greek, the way they emphasized things was through repetition. And so if you see words that are repeated, they didn't have exclamation points, they didn't have bold and underline, and you know, they didn't have Mac computers. I don't know how they lived without a Mac computer, but they didn't. So the way they would do it is by repetition or by building a chiasm or by building a ladder of some other kind of, and there's all kinds. Look at the repetition of the word corrupt. Corrupt means spoiled, ruined. It was rotten, rotten to the core. All people had gotten rotten and they were destroying and polluting the earth where, where life, where the, where the image of God was to be spread and goodness spread. Now you see that evil had become so prolific, so bad, that the creation was in danger of being completely decreated, completely undone. And God had stepped back. He let man do it. They created Franken-earth. And he steps in and he puts an end. He puts a stop to it. There's repetition of these words. Violence is the word for injustice and cruelty. Thank God we live in a country where we have a bill of rights and we have the rule of law. And there's things like that that protect people. And even then we see injustice being done even in our own country. But go to some other country. Some of you have been in other countries. Some of you may have come from another country. The cruelty, the injustice staggers the mind. In fact, those of us in the West, we can hardly get our head around it. It was cruelty. It was injustice. It was violence where the strong are crushing the weak. And Moses is telling Israel what his message is to the people of Israel, which is where we have to start. We can't just grab that stuff and bring it into our world. What was the point? Why was Moses telling them that? Because these people were getting ready to enter the promised land. And they were being told, you're going to go into this land. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be a garden. Remember, he put Adam and Eve in a garden. He prepared the garden. He planted the garden. He built the garden. And the garden at the time of Moses and Joshua and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, these great heroes of that exodus, these men went in there, they spied the land out, and they said, it is a garden. It is flowing with milk and honey. They brought back a a bunch of grapes that were so huge that it took two men to carry them on a pole. It was amazing, but 
The serpent was occupying the garden. The Canaanites were in the land and they were the ones that were the descendants of these people who were doing evil. You see the story. You see the picture. And Moses is saying, I'm sending you in to this new land. God is going to plant us in the garden again. And so therefore, we are to go into the new land and we are to refrain from doing evil. We are to go back in and we are to form and fill and create the land. We're to be fruitful, we're to multiply, we're to plant gardens, we're not supposed to have standing armies. Israel didn't have standing armies until much later. If you read the book of Judges, they were always having to hire an army or call out some superhero to come save them because they didn't have a standing army. They were farmers. The Canaanites were a war warrior. Archaeologists said there has never been and probably never will be a culture as violent as what they have uncovered in, in the, in the uh, Fertile Crescent. These ancient Akkadian, Ugaritic, very violent, very cruel, murderous, and tyrannical. And he's telling them, you're going to go back into the garden, now Go! Recreate. Look what God did with, with Moses. I mean, with Noah. He did judge the world. He's telling them the stroke of justice was deserved, but he did preserve Noah. And he mentions his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These people on the plains of Moab, Israel, were direct descendants of Shem. That's why we call them Shemites or Semites. And the other nations that derived from them were also... The, the Ishmaelites and the Arab nations of today, the Ishmaelites and the Arabs are not the same. You may think they are, but they're not. The, these, <clears throat> these nations that came were all Semitic. They were all descendants of Shem. And next week, you're going to see how, Moses, how, how Noah blesses these sons and what it means for the rest of history. It is absolutely uh, remarkable. So what is God saying to us? He's telling Moses this. What's he saying to us? What does the flood narrative mean to you? What he's saying to us is that God's plan, listen, his plan, his purpose has never been to abandon this world. And I'm sorry to say that in evangelical, American evangelical culture, we have gotten the idea for decades, maybe centuries, that God is going to destroy the world at the end of time, which he is. He's going to redo it, remake it. Uh, and that we're going to go live in heaven. We're all going to have white robes and we're going to have harps and we're going to be floating around up there in just kind of this awful place where there's no Beethoven, no Dvorak, no Mozart, no Rolling Stones. I'm going to be fair. There will not be any Marty Robbins. No country music will be allowed in heaven, otherwise it wouldn't be heaven. Uh, <laughs> guys, I'm trying to just trying to look, ease up. All right, look. It's going to be a recreated earth. It's not going to be clouds floating around in clouds and all the same you know, clothes and everything's the same. Ah, who wants to go there? No, it's going to be a recreated earth where heaven comes down to earth. God's going to recreate the cosmos, everything that is. And it's going to be made glorious. And, and this was a sign pointing to that glory, pointing to that new creation. And why this is important cannot be overstated. Because you as Christians need to get, you know, you've heard the, thing that, the, the saying, oh, that person's 
so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You heard that? If you were truly heavenly minded, the earth would become utmost importance to you. You would start thinking about how can I, as David prayed in the beautiful prayer he gave this morning, how can we be salt and light when they're shooting and killing people in Walmarts, for goodness sakes, folks? How can we, who's going to speak out when our leaders, our national leaders from the highest to the lowest, state and local, are filled with nothing but hate and vitriol? Where are they going to hear the righteousness of God? Only from us. I made that point a few weeks ago. I reiterated it last week and I'm saying it again. We have got to step up. This is the message. We are destined for life on this earth, a recreated earth, and we are going to rule and reign alongside of Christ in all humility to do good to our world and to recreate and bring the garden. That has got to be our focus. Especially in these hard times. What about God's redeeming love? Look at verses 10 and 9 and 10. Noah, in his generation, that means among his contemporaries, he was righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. This is a threefold accolade, and most scholars will tell you that, that Moses did it on purpose. He explained to the audience, here, was, here is our great, 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 great grandfather. Here he is. And this was the kind of man he is. He's the kind of man that God wants you to be. A man who is righteous in his generation. In other words, among his contemporaries, he's a man of peace, a man of creativity, a man who speaks kindness and and goodness and right, truth over lies. Okay? And here's the definition that I love the most for righteousness. This comes from Dr. Bruce Walkey. Dr. Walkey was my Old Testament professor in seminary, and he is one of the probably one of the top ten Hebrew scholars in the entire world, even among rabbis. He spent twelve years in it. This man is brilliant. And here is his definition for what the Old Testament referred to as righteous. To serve, listen, to serve the interests of creation. A righteous person served the interest of creation, their neighbors, and their great king. The righteous, listen to that, this is mind-blowing. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. Now this goes counter to human, almost everything that's human. And certainly to Western people who, you know, we have rights. And I, I love the Bill of Rights. I want to I live in that world. But whatever happened to a theology of suffering for the other? Where's that gone? It's almost absent in Christianity. Unless you leave our shores and go to some of these other nations... Or you read church history. But what about suffering? Even unjustly, for righteousness sake. What about that? Jesus said, if you love those that love you, what thanks do you have? Even sinners do the same. If you love those that love you, what thanks do you have? Love your enemies. 
Pray for them that despitefully use you. Step into the, into the pain and the hurt for the sake of someone else. Disadvantage yourself for somebody else for righteousness sake. G.K. Chesterton, some of you know, G.K. Chesterton, uh, brilliant scholar, Roman Catholic guy, author, he was, wrote detective novels, you know, wonderful, fun, fun stuff. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting or found lacking. Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. We say, oh, it's too hard. I have to give up too much. I have to suffer. If we don't look, folks, if we do not recover a theology of suffering, we are going to miss the will of God for we've got to be willing to step into the hurts of this world. Jesus did for us. He stepped into it. And Moses did the same. He was, Peter said he was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling people, repent and believe the gospel. God is going to, going to destroy this world. Come and join us in the ark. I'm going to make it big. It's going to be really big. Everybody will fit. You can bring your pets. He was blameless. The word blameless means he was wholehearted. He was committed. It does not mean that he was without sin. It means that he was someone who abstained from sin. He resisted it. He fought it. I can't tell you how many times. I, I've got to admit it. I have said to God, I can't help it. And you don't want to know what he says back to me. And he said that to you too. And you know, we just don't like to talk about it. So, and he walked with God. This means communion with God. This means that he was in relationship with God, as are all of you. He talks about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You know, I love this. He says, bring, I'm, I'm going to save you, Noah. But you know, just to show you how great I am, I'm going to save your wife, Mrs. Noah. I'm going to save your three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. They're not even named. I'm going to save them all. Just bring them into the ark. There is a very good place where we can convince our Baptist uh, brothers and sisters to baptize their babies. Right? Some Presbyterian in here, please say amen. All right. Yeah, I know. We can argue about that later. And we most certainly will. So he says, make an ark. And then you have the, the, the flood. The flood is unleashed. The narrative of the flood is very interesting. The flood is unleashed. And the flood triumphs. The, the, and this is another chiasm. It's fascinating, but there just isn't enough time. I wish I had an hour or two. Uh, no, you don't. But I would love to stand here by myself and just talk about this. So awesome. The flood is unleashed. The flood is triumphant to the highest mountains and all life is destroyed, at least all life that Noah knew about and all the mountains he knew about. And then the flood abates. Now there is a Babylonian uh, narrative. You all know there's a Babylonian narrative that predates Genesis, right? Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and, and more specifically, the Epic of Atrahasis. It's a Babylonian legend. It's way more ancient than the book of Genesis. And it's the same flood story with some details changed, but it's fascinating that these flood stories were 
out there in the world. And Noah, Moses comes in and he tells the true story, which all the other stories were only trying to recapture or, or rethink. And in the epic of Atrahasis, very fascinating, the gods were tiled because the, the mankind was not serving them well. They weren't catering to the gods. And so the gods said, we're going to destroy them and we'll destroy them with a flood. And so the gods unleash this flood. But the flood goes out of control. And it starts flooding the world and flooding and it starts even going up to where the gods are and they're all panicky. They don't know what's going to happen. How are we going to stop? We're going to get killed too. Not, not very good gods, right? I mean, <laughs> they're unable to control the flood. And so this narrative is saying, no, God unleashed the flood. God made the flood effective. And then when it was time, the flood abated. He put it to, into its place because He is God. God remembered Noah. Look at 8.1. He made the wind to blow. Same Hebrew word as, as in Genesis chapter 1 when it says that the spirit was hovering. Ruach in Hebrew. It's wind. It's spirit. It's air. He makes the wind. You see the correlation between creation and new creation. This is what Moses is doing. He's not just talking out of his head. He's telling you and I, new creation is coming. New creation. Redemption is coming. He made the wind blow. The water goes down. The land appears. What does that sound like? Genesis chapter 1. The dry land appears. The water is up there in heaven. There's a firmament created. All the same. Fascinating. Go out of the ark. You, your sons, your wives, every creature with you. Be fruitful, multiply. He even blesses them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Same words, identical to what he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. What is Moses saying to Israel? He's saying to them, I'm telling you this story. This is a true story. It happened. And all of our culture, all this Mediterranean basin culture, they all have their stories about the flood. This is the true one. And this is why he did it. He saved the descendants of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth through the flood. He saved them through the flood. He did not save them. Listen, this is so important. He didn't save them from the flood. Judgment and redemption don't work like that. You see it everywhere in the Bible, by the way. We're saved through something. We're not saved from something. I'll try to make sense of that in a moment. And so Moses is telling Israel, you've been saved through the flood. Our ancestor Shem came through the flood. We also got delivered, he reminds them, we also got delivered from the flood in Egypt. Remember that one? Egypt was oppressing us and God came and he took us out and we were facing death. There was a flood, the Red Sea and God opened the Red Sea and we passed through on dry ground and then the flood came and destroyed our enemies. Pretty cool, huh? Amazing. And he's telling us, we're going to go into Jordan and as I told you last week, the priests were carrying the ark and they stepped into the river Jordan, which it says was at its high point, its high point, you know, rainy season and it was in a flood stage and the minute that the, the, that the sandal of the, high, the priests that were carrying the ark touched the water, 
The Jordan River dried up, another flood, another redemption, going into the garden, new creation. And he's telling Israel, he's telling the nation, now go, serve the interests of creation, of every nation, be a lamp. He actually tells them in the Old Testament repeatedly, be a lamp, be a light to the world so that they can see this glorious temple up on a hill all lit up with these menorahs, these beautiful lamps. And from far away, the pilgrims coming from every land would see the land of Israel lit up with the glory of God. Serve the world even at your own expense. Resist sin. Remember what he told Cain. Sin's crouching at the door. It'll take you down. Resist it. Put up a fight. And embrace, trust, obey your Creator in the promised land. If not, if you don't, another flood will come and will sweep you away. And it happened. They did not obey God. The nation of Israel went down, down, down from the time of Solomon all the way till they were swept away. In 722 B.C., the ten tribes of the north, Israel, were taken away by the Assyrians. And in 536 B.C., the city of Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, and they burned the temple down to the ground, and they took all the people out of the land except the poorest of the land, and the land was swept clean by another flood. And the story of the Bible kind of ends there, the Old Testament. And you have hundreds of years, many of you know, I've got to rush ahead now quickly, before we hear these words, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near you. It's coming. And then Jesus comes and he said, the kingdom of God is here now. It has come. It is the fulfillment of that flood narrative in Jesus Christ. Every generation of godly people were looking forward to the judgment. We, the world needs to be judged. The justice needs to be done. But what about... God and His creation. He loves His creation. He loves everything that He made. He loves redwoods. He loves blue whales. He loves humpback whales. He loves the Amazon forest. He loves the desert in El Paso. He loves His creation. He loves baseball. So He knows we need baseball bats. We have to cut trees to make baseball bats. He's not against those things. But He wants us to care for our world and care for one another, especially people that are not like us and that don't like us and maybe a completely different religion, for goodness sake. Bless your enemies. Love those that persecute. That's what He's talking about. At your own expense, give yourself to the world because I'm recreating the world. The flood is God's judgment. The commission to the church is go, make disciples, Fill the earth with the light of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Folks, I don't know how more plainly I can tell you Jesus Christ. I told you last week. He is the ark. The ark is a symbol of how, think about it, the ark is a symbol for how justice and love can meet. 
they meet in the person of Jesus. God exercises judgment. He's got to punish sin. He can't just let it go wild in the world. And He does. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was made a curse on that cross. And all He says to you and me is, Trust me. Just like God told Noah, Trust me, build the ark. Jesus says, Trust me. Come in to me. Be baptized into my death so that you can be born again into my life. That's why we observe the sacrament. That's what it points to. How does God fulfill the righteousness required? How does He do that? The Apostle Paul tells us, and I guarantee you, and I don't know, but I think the Apostle Paul was, these were the words of Genesis, the flood narrative was rolling around in Paul's head when he said this, these words, I'm going to read them to you, then we'll be closed. But when I read them to you, I'm going to put in where, where I think Paul is drawing his illusions from. So listen carefully. I'm not going to tell you where it's from, but here we go. Listen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the ark, he is new creation. In fact, the Greek doesn't even, said he, it doesn't even say he is. It just says, if you're in Christ, then it, then it has this bold, emphatic statement, new creation. In Christ, new creation. Christ the ark, new creation. The old has passed away. Sound like the flood? Sound like the washing of the earth with the flood? The flood of judgment. But behold, the new has come, Paul says. All this is from God, who through Christ, the ark, through the storm, reconciled us to Himself. In other words, He made peace. Christ made peace with God for us. We deserve that flood. We deserve that wrath. And He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that in Christ, remember the ark, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not Counting their sins and trespasses. Well, why? Why is He not counting the sins and trespasses? Why is He passing over us? Why? Is He just saying, ollie, ollie, oxen free? Everybody can go free now. What's just about that? Nothing. It's unjust. If He was just a willy-nilly, forgive. No. Listen, Paul. Continuing with Paul. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin. He was as innocent as a wood in the ark. He was as innocent as the animals in the ark. He was innocent as every plank in the ark. But those inside the ark were not innocent. so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we find our righteousness in Him, not our good deeds, not our good doing. Good luck with that. But in our submission to Him, our laying it all down, our building a crazy boat, when everybody in the world says, are you crazy? And Noah said, yeah, I'm crazy. Not hammer. Fear of judgment passes over us. You're free. Look, the message of Christianity 
is that you, every one of you that have invited Christ into your heart, you are absolutely free from the flood of judgment ever, ever again. And he's asking us, he's demanding us to follow him and trust him, our great king, our great savior, to serve the interests of creation and our neighbors, to obey our king, even at our own expense, the righteous, that's us, We must be willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. That means everybody else. To resist and to abstain from evil and to pursue righteousness and walk. Jesus said, follow me. How much plainer. Follow me, walk with me. Be in communion with me. In a moment, we're going to come take holy communion. That's what he's saying. Taste, see. And by taking, you're saying to, you're pledging to God. Every time you put bread and wine in your mouth each week, you are pledging to God. I will do this for you because you did it for me. And here are the emblems of that sacrifice, the body and blood of Jesus for me. That's what Holy Communion is all. It's all there in the flood narrative. How crazy is that? Don't you love it? Will you trust him? I hope you will. Our world is begging for the church to become the church for once and step up and stop our whining and our hand wringing and get out there and work for this world. Let's do it. Father, please help us. In each one of our lives, we have many avenues which we could do good for others, even at our own expense. We have nothing to... Everything you've given us is a gift. What do we have to lose? Nothing. Help us to be radically generous, to be people who are peacemakers, to let the words that come out of our mouth as David prayed this morning, words of healing and health and goodness and kindness and reconciliation. I don't, who's going to do it, Father? We must do it. And we will. We're asking for you to fill us with your spirit. Bring revival to the church around the world, but especially here in our city, in our nation. Bring the revival of your spirit into our own lives. And we will do what you say. We'll go where you send us. We lay the sword of our lives at your feet. And we pray that you will command us, tell us what to do. And off we will go. We thank you. We love you. Amen.